Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. Today I'm joined by Idaho Press reporter Betsy Russell to discuss a decision from the Idaho Supreme Court that was made public on Monday, August 23rd. So Betsy, the higher court ruled that a bill passed by the Idaho legislature on voter ballot initiatives was unconstitutional. This was the case that was brought by Reclaim Idaho and the committee to, excuse me, the committee to protect and preserve the Idaho Constitution. They asked the Idaho Supreme Court to strike down Senate Bill 1110, which passed during the 2021 legislative session. Uh, And that's a bill that would have required the need for signatures from 6% of registered voters in all 35 legislative districts, rather than the 18 legislative districts it previously required. What were some of the arguments around Senate Bill 1110 and how that could have been problematic, the bill that is? Sure. So in the legislature, the debate was mostly about preserving the voice of rural Idahoans. So people who live in really sparsely populated areas way out in the middle of nowhere, that somehow um, there was a concern that they might be run over in the initiative process by the interests of people from more heavily populated areas of the state. And so the idea was by requiring this 6% percent threshold in all 35 districts, that would make sure that there wasn't any district that was left out. But that argument was really turned on its head by the Supreme Court's decision, which found that in reality, what this bill did by going from 6% in 18 districts to 6% in all 35 of the districts was accomplish exactly the opposite, set up a system where people in a sparsely populated corner of the state could be completely overrun by people somewhere else. And the example that was given in the court's decision was if there were one urban district, say maybe even in Boise, that opposed a widely popular agricultural related initiative that had broad statewide support, it could stop it in its tracks. That urban district could stop that widely supported measure in its tracks, not let it get on the ballot, not let the rest of the state vote upon it. So instead of being a move toward inclusion, the court found that this was actually giving an absolute veto power to any single legislative district in the state to overturn the will of the majority and not about enacting a new law, just about putting something on the ballot so that everybody could vote up or down. Right. And of course, the the fundamental issue is they found it, uh, it took away from the people's right to legislate independent of the legislature. In reference to what you were talking about, the impact of rural counties versus urban counties, I pulled a quote here. The court wrote that if the legislature's actual goal is to prevent any initiative or referendum from qualifying for the ballot, then this is probably an effective tactic. However, this is inconsistent with the constitutional requirement of a narrow drawn solution. How do you think Republican lawmakers uh, will react to uh, this? They have already seen some of the reactions. And basically, um, the word that I heard most was disappointed. Um, They were very disappointed that they lost and that they lost in a unanimous decision. Um, Basically, a lot of Republican legislators felt like, oh, this, this had to be a good way to help preserve the voice of rural voters. But the court said, no, it was not. Um, and so House Speaker Begke said he was disappointed. He said, we thought we were preserving the voice of 
rural Idahoans. The court apparently disagreed. Um, Senate President Pro Tem uh, Chuck Winder said that he was disappointed um, and that he was hopeful that the court would be would give more deference to the legislature's power to regulate the initiative process. But he also said this is the decision and we need to live with it. And the, the kind of the key finding in the court's decision was that the right that has been guaranteed to Idaho citizens since 1912 in the Constitution, the right to initiative and referendum to pass or reject laws on their own, independent of the legislature, is a, quote, fundamental right. And that's the most important kind of right. And a fundamental right, any violation of that, any infringement of that, um, is subject to what is legally called strict scrutiny. The government has to have a compelling governmental interest that it can prove it'll accomplish um, in order to infringe on that. And this idea of preserving the voice of rural voters, the court said, no, the legislature did not prove that they had an interest in that or that they were accomplishing it through passing this law. So this law did not stand up to that strict scrutiny and it was unconstitutional. And so they have now rolled us back to where we stood on January 1 of this year. We are back to 6% of signatures from registered voters in 18 of the 35 legislative districts. And at first, when I saw the, the decision initially come out, I thought, well, that was a little bit of a loss for the parties that sued. They were asking to do away with all geographic requirements. But then when I read the entire decision, I saw that the court said, we are not ruling on whether or not that 18 district law is constitutional or not. We are dismissing that without prejudice because that was not what was squarely before us and argued in this case, it could still be challenged. And they were very emphatic in saying, we're not saying 6% of 18 districts is constitutional. So if the legislature has 6% of 18 districts now, and it wants to think about going above that, the court has sent a pretty clear sign that's not a good bet legally. And um, in fact, we may end up going below that at some point. The court also addressed an issue that uh, Reclaim Idaho brought up. Uh, there was a law that was amended in 2020 and states that a successful initiative may not become effective earlier than July 1 of the following year or the start of the state's fiscal year. They also ruled that this provision was unconstitutional. Of course, that was addressed after Medicaid expansion. Can you walk me through some of the uh, rationale behind the 2020 amendment sure. regarding the fiscal year? Yeah, there were a number of, of um, different changes proposed in 2019 and 2020 to the initiative process, um, including a couple of big sweeping bills that got vetoed because even the governor said, no, these go too far, they're unconstitutional. Uh, but some smaller pieces were put through. And that issue was kind of a sleeper issue. It didn't get a lot of attention. Um, but one of the smaller pieces that the legislature passed was to set the earliest possible effective date for any new initiative law. Any new law that was created by the voters in a November election could not take effect before the following July 1. So the election's in November, it doesn't take effect until July 1. Well, what happens during that long period of eight months or so in there? The legislature convenes in January. And so the court said what that law did 
was it gave the legislature a chance to repeal any citizen enacted law, any law enacted by initiative before it could ever even take effect. Uh, that was not what the constitution had in mind when it granted citizen initiative rights. Um, and so that law also was overturned, it's gone. Um, the court said that laws, according to previous case law, other rulings they've issued this very court in the past, laws created by initiative stand on equal footing with laws created by the legislature. And the legislature, all their laws take effect July 1 or the start of the next fiscal year, unless they specify another date. And they often do specify another date. Senate Bill 1110, for example, had an emergency clause. It took effect in April immediately when the governor signed it into law. They said if this initiative law process is on an equal footing, then the citizens also need to be able to specify their own effective date and not have the legislature say, oh, it can't be effective until after we've already repealed it. Uh, this is not the first time that there's been this push and pull between lawmakers and citizens trying to get an initiative on the ballot. What do you think about 2022? Do you anticipate them trying again? You know, I wouldn't be surprised. It, this does seem to be something that keeps coming back and keeps coming back. But there were some pretty clear signals sent by the court this time that it's gone far enough. And um, this week we did hear the day after the decision we heard from Democratic legislative leaders who were um, praising the court decision and calling on their Republican colleagues to stop <laughs> and not try any further attempts to limit the initiative rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution because, number one, the court has said, no, you can't do that. It's unconstitutional. Number two, they all took an oath to defend the Constitution. And number three, it's costing us quite a bit of money, the taxpayers, to defend unconstitutional laws only to have them then struck down in court. How does uh, the ruling that these initiatives are a fundamental right impact possible future restrictions the legislature might put on the initiative process? It makes it far more likely they will not be upheld in court. It really does. It, it vastly decreases the chances of those um, restrictions standing up. Um, so it's, you know, it's a real warning to the legislature. And the court was very clear that that this is a fight that has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, the court detailed a hundred years of history of the legislature taking action to try to limit the citizens' initiative rights and the citizens and the courts pushing back. And those rights are still there. <laughs> They're still in the constitution. Um, and the court also pointed out that the legislature seems to make these moves against initiative rights pretty much every time the citizens succeed in using them. <laughs> and that has been our history. Um, the latest attempts followed the 2018 successful passage of the Medicaid expansion initiative. The 18 district law came in after the 2012 referendum that rejected the Luna laws, which were some very unpopular school reform laws that the legislature passed and the citizens immediately repealed. Um, there was a term limits initiative that was enacted some years back and was followed by more restrictions on initiatives plus the legislature overturning that law itself. And that's a whole other point. In Idaho, the legislature actually can repeal a law that was passed by initiative or amended because those laws stand on equal footing with laws passed by the legislature and the legislature can, a future legislature can always amend or repeal a law that a past legislature has passed. So the legislature still has 
most of the lawmaking power in its hands. But the citizens have this side power independently so that if the legislature doesn't want to address an issue, despite being asked over and over and over, the citizens at great expense and effort can take things into their own hands and propose their own law and enact them. And that's what the initiative and referendum are all about. Speaking of expense, going to the Supreme Court is not free. Um, it's my understanding you recently pulled the legal fees of where the legislature is at for their counsel defending them? That's right. And in, under normal circumstances, the legislature would not have direct legal fees to defend this case because the Idaho Attorney General's office defends it on behalf of the state. And they did so in this case. But the legislature chose to retain private counsel in addition to the team from the Attorney General's office to basically argue on the same side. They hired the Boise law firm of Holland and Hart. And prior to this week, they had spent $179,476 on those private legal bills. It inched up a little bit more this week. We have now topped $180,000. It's at $180,763. It still could go up further, um, depending on if there are any additional costs. The, I mean, the decision just came out yesterday, and these bills um, were submitted before this week. Um, plus, in Monday's court decision, the court took a fairly rare step. Um, it exercised the private attorney general doctrine, which has not been invoked in 41 years, and ordered the state to pay the attorney fees and costs for the two groups that won the case, Reclaim Idaho and the Committee to Protect and Preserve the Idaho Constitution. And we don't know yet how much that will be. But if the private legal bill from Holland and Hart is any guide, it could be another $180,000 that the taxpayers will be on the hook for to pay for the winning side's legal fees. Um, and that's getting up to a lot of money. The court ordered that bill to be split between the Secretary of State, who was the initial named defendant, and the legislature, the two parties who lost. The Secretary of State's office did utilize the Attorney General's office for his defense, just to clarify for our listeners. Correct. And so both were present in court and both submitted briefs and both those legal teams um, made arguments in the case and the other side had to respond to both. Sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how do you think this impacts initiatives that are already in the signature gathering process? I know Reclaim Idaho is uh, pursuing an initiative regarding education funding. So how will this decision impact the ongoing initiatives? It's my understanding that this decision rolls the clock right back to January 1, and it is as if Senate Bill 1110 never existed. So they are gathering signatures under the previous law, the 6% in 18 districts law, the very same law that was in effect in 2018 when the Medicaid expansion initiative was successfully mounted and passed by the voters. Now, it's worth noting that another initiative was put on the ballot um, around the same time about horse racing and that failed, the voters rejected it. Um, both of them were very big efforts um, to get on the ballot. The Medicaid expansion used volunteers almost entirely um, and it was a huge citizen mobilization effort to gather their signatures. The horse racing initiative used paid signature gatherers exclusively and it was still a huge thing and it cost them a whole lot of money. Um, but it was the citizen-backed one that actually passed. So going forward, we are right back to where we were in 2018 as far as what that process is. I think people on all sides would say it is not an easy process. 
it took months, maybe years, in both of those measures to organize um, those campaigns, get the signatures just to qualify the measure for the ballot. And then, of course, there's a campaign in which people have to advocate for or against, depending on their views, and the voters have the final say. That is the process we are back to now. Some of the language used in the opinion written by Justice Moeller was unique. You noted specifically a footnote on the legislature's um, action or lack of action in reference to signy die. You want to walk me through a little bit of what struck you That's right. struck you as unique about that. This caught my eye. Yeah. And I, I don't know that it was really the language that was unique. It was the topic. And the reason it caught my eye was on um, page nine of this 55 page decision. There was a footnote regarding whether or not the Idaho legislature has adjourned signy die for the year. And we have heard conflicting opinions on that because the Senate adjourned sine die, which means without a day, that means they're done for the year. The House did not. They merely recessed saying they could come back at any time before December 31st. Well, the Idaho Attorney General's office issued an opinion that that means since one House can't adjourn sine die for more than three days without permission of the other, that means the whole legislature is still in session and they could come back. There were conflicting legal opinions out there that said, no, that means they both adjourned sine die and they can't come back. Well, the Supreme Court said in their footnote that they have not adjourned sine die <laughs> and they could come back. Now, as I understand it legally, because this footnote here um, was not the question that the court was asked to address, it's what's called dicta. It's not binding law. But it is a pretty darn good indication, since that language appears in a unanimous Idaho Supreme Court decision, that that's the way the court probably would lean if they were asked about whether our legislature has adjourned sine die this year or not, or whether it could come back from recess. So I think we kind of have an answer there. It helped give me some guidance as a reporter who covers the legislature, wondering, are they coming back <laughs> in a few months here? And I think they are. Yeah, I suppose time and tell whether uh, they come back early. And I think both you and I are preparing to buckle up for that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is after the longest legislative session in Idaho history ever. Yeah. That we could be back here in the fall or winter. I guess it is worth note. They aren't collecting their per diem unless they come back. Not while they were at recess. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Not in recess. Um. Betsy, is there anything else that uh, I've forgotten to ask that maybe struck you as especially unique about Monday's opinion? I, to me, the, the most compelling words in the opinion um, were when the court said, let me find this quote here, the contested legislation constituted a grave infringement on the people's constitutional rights. A grave infringement on constitutional rights. I think everyone in Idaho knows what a grave infringement on constitutional rights is. And the court said, that's what Senate Bill 1110 was. That's what the legislature did by going so far to restrict initiative rights that were guaranteed in the constitution. That is pretty darn strong and very compelling. And I think it sends a really strong signal to the legislature. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back here next Wednesday. Follow Idaho Reports on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for daily updates on what's happening in Idaho.
presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.